All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 16th day of January 2018. I do want to remind you, I am the author of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, you can subscribe to that newsletter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and uh, or you can call our office in New York, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? Chen uh, has had a remarkable track record in picking stocks. He's a fundamental, mostly a fundamental analyst, but finds ways to buy them uh, in a fairly timely manner and make lots of money. He's done extremely well, especially in the biotech sector. Uh, also on the energy sector as well. I want to thank uh, each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, want to invite you to send your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Also, to want, we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Sponsors for today's show, Bonterra Resources, Uranium Energy, RN Resources, Novo Resources, and Genesis Metals Corp. I've titled today's show, Economic and Market Consequences of Rising Interest Rates. Danielle DiMartino Booth, uh, Michael Oliver, and Ivan Bebek of RN Resources, they all return today for today's show. Interest rates are rising, but why? Are they rising because a booming economy is boosting demand for capital and that profits will rise dramatically to justify the current stock market meltup? What happens to the government solvency when Uncle Sam has to start paying considerably higher rates of interest on its $20 trillion of debt. Can stocks remain elevated with surging interest rates? What would plunging stock prices do to pension funds? Are there reasons for hope toward a more sensible economic policy under a new Fed chairman? What are the dangers of a return to quantitative easing resulting in a weaker dollar and rising commodity prices, as both uh, Michael Oliver has uh, suggested, is in the cards, as has uh, Alistair McLeod, who was a guest last week. What would a return to quantitative easing mean for the dollar, in other words? And what would it mean for gold and commodity prices? So those and many more questions will be posed to uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth. Uh, She worked as an advisor to Richard Fisher at the Federal Reserve Bank of uh, Dallas, and she is a very outspoken critic of the Federal Reserve. Refreshing, I would say, to have an insider who actually thinks for herself instead of uh, groupthink, as uh, seems to be the case with most Federal Reserve folks. Then after our first commercial break, I'm happy to tell you that Ivan Bebek will be with me to tell uh, tell us about the exploration plans of RN Resources this winter in Peru, 
And uh, previously, you know, we've had to wait for the next summer or spring to come along before we get news from Arun. But this year, with uh, some very exciting projects down in Peru, we're going to find out what uh, Ivan's plans are for the company going forward through the winter and what kind of news you might be expected to hear. But right now, I'm uh, equally thankful that Michael Oliver is with me to, uh, to clue us in on what's taking place in a couple of major markets that we have our eyes on. Uh, most glued to. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to have you, and it's OliverMSA.com, folks. OliverMSA.com. Go there to learn more about Michael's letter, and seriously, if you're a serious investor, consider signing up for his letter. Michael, I ask you, what should we talk about today? And you said gold at the gates. Wow, that sounds interesting. Gold at the gates. I think it's, uh, what, about 13... 140 or 1339, something like that right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The high this week was uh, 45 in the electronics. Ooh, if it wasn't 45, uh, was it? Well, 45 yeah, is kind of a key. session, yeah. Is, is 40, um, 1345 kind of a key number for you, no? Well, it, it, I, I'm going to ballpark it and say 1350. We're now, <clears throat> momentum broke out in February of 2016 mm-hmm. at $1,140 plus. So we're well above there. This is, I'm talking annual momentum. We made a big deal about it then. We continue to hold to a long, long-term bullish position on gold, despite sell-offs over the last two years, a uh, year and a half. The uh, issue now for gold is no longer momentum. Momentum is a green light. It's, it's on fire. Uh, it's the price action. And if you stand back and look at a monthly price chart of gold, bar chart, uh, go back at least to 2012 where the crash occurred in, in, in 13, and then we bottomed 13, 14, and 15, and then turned up. Uh, but look at the price chart, and you'll see what the orthodox price chart guys, which we're not, we look at momentum primarily, but they would call it a massive, uh, complex head and shoulder bottom. It's huge. Mm-hmm. It's years wide. And if you measure its dimension, the depth of the head and shoulder bottom, it has a swing objective of $1,700. Uh-huh. Now, in order to break it out, again, we're talking price, and price is almost always lagged to momentum. Its own momentum leads. Yep. Price will break out of its base if you can close out a month at thirteen fifty or higher. Mm-hmm. We've traded up there those levels before, twice above that level in 2016 and again uh, months ago, but never closed a month out up there. And now the, the angle, the line that comes through across those highs, what, what the, they would call a neckline of the head and shoulder bottom, comes through such, if you close 1350, you're out of here. Mm-hmm. And I have no reason to argue with the price chart whatsoever. I trust it, I believe it, because momentum is already stronger than price. So it's pre-validated, as it were, by momentum. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would assume you get gold through that 1350 level, there's going to be some people talking about it. Now, most people haven't even noticed that gold's come from uh, below uh, into the 1240s. It's, it's rallied $100 in about three weeks, four weeks maybe. Yeah. Uh, and nobody's noticed because the stock market has stolen all the thunder. Well, that's a pretty serious percent rise in gold rapidly. And it didn't all occur in one day. It was just a bunch of good days back to back. Quite a strong move. And I call it uh, gold at the gates. That's what we labeled our report back in February of 2016. But we were talking about momentum gates. Now we're talking about a price gate. And I mm-hmm. think if you can get through that 1350, a lot of doubters or people on the sidelines or people who've been shaken out 10 times will uh, look at the chart and say, golly, I better get on board. Mm-hmm. And I think they probably should. 
Do you have any upside targets, uh, Michael? No, I have the seventeen hundred. I think is probably valid as a as a swing measurement of the base. But frankly, I I think we're headed beyond the old two thousand eleven highs, and we're in a, a what might be considered a final bull leg in gold uh, that coincides with a lot of uh, unwinding of trends, events, and distortions of the last decade, two decades, three decades. I'm talking mainly, you know, manipulation of interest rates by central banks uh, coercively, sure. effectively. Uh, you know, non-market forces have distorted things for a long, long time. And those, when they come unwound, gold uh, is usually the leader in the, in the unwinding process on the other side. So as government bonds get whacked, which I think is an event for 2018, and I mean downside in price, up in yield, uh, I think gold will be one of the great... Uh, beneficiaries of this. And I also think what will help gold will be a wobble, and you know, a first sharp wobble in the stock market, which I suspect is not a crash. It's, uh, I think, the stock market bubble, which I think we're in, when it first gives up, will drop something on the order of 10% or so, mm-hmm. probably fairly rapidly. And then it'll try to dig in and, you know, and stabilize and act like it wants to make a new high and not do it. Uh, I'm not looking for a 29 or 87 here. I'm just looking for a top. And frankly, the price levels the S and P is trading right now, which is in the uh, twenty, what twenty seven seventies, right twenty eight something a while ago. Uh, you can't be here in February. If uh, the S and P is trading around these levels in February, it's going to get kicked. And wow. I think that yeah. would help shift more money. Again, investor preference is a key issue. It's a it's a foggy fundamental. It's based mm-hmm. on all kinds of things. It's not, not an economic-type thing. It's, it's an emotional thing. It, what, it's a feel-good type thing mm-hmm. or a feel-bad type thing. Mm-hmm. I think money's been moving into gold, wise money. And I think uh, a lot of investors, if you rattle the stock market, will say, hey, I need to go somewhere else. Yeah, well, I don't doubt. Behaving, they'll say, oh, I'll go to gold. You know, yeah. And it's behaving. No doubt, that's uh, that's what it will take for for a lot of people to start thinking that people that don't really understand that gold is money and that it's outperformed over the long run, uh, the dollar and a lot of other assets as well. The stock market is the most spectacular mm-hmm. place to be be uh, these days, and it's worked out very well. But uh, we know that all good things eventually come to an end, including the time we have with you today, Michael. We do have okay. to. Go on to a commercial break. Thank you so much for that overview, Thank though, of where Jay. the markets are. Always great to have you with us. It's Oliver MSA, folks. Oliver as MSA. Uh, seriously, consider subscribing to Michael's wonderful letter. Thanks, Michael, and we'll look to do it again next week if you're available. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break, but don't go away because Ivan Bebek of RN Resources will be with us. And this is a company that has something to talk about through the winter months this year. First time. Uh, I'm really looking forward to what Ivan has to say. I'm a shareholder uh, recommendation in my newsletter, so we're looking forward uh, to hear Ivan. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Ivan Bebek. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Ivan Bebek, the executive chairman of RN Resources. Uh, Ivan has had more than 16 years of experience in financing foreign negotiations and acquisitions in mineral exploration industry, and he and his partner, Sean Wallace, have had a remarkable career. They're both young men yet, but they've had a couple of significant successes in which they've made a lot of money for shareholders. And uh, with that track record, I've certainly uh, jumped on board, uh, bought the stock myself. Uh, it is a recommendation in my newsletter, RN Resources, uh, because I believe that um, this time could be bigger and better than the past because, uh, well, there's just a lot of things for the company, uh, a lot of targets, uh, really spectacular targets to shoot at. And uh, so I'm really glad to have you. Thanks for joining me again, Ivan. Well, thanks for having me back, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Always good to have you on the show uh, to talk about Arin because uh, it is uh, it is a remarkable story. The stock has been somewhat, maybe somewhat disappointing, I suppose, to some of us who are used to having nothing but uh, but gains when we invest in your uh, in your in your stocks uh, in the past, your companies that you've had it up. Uh, but uh, I should before we get started, should tell our listeners uh, you trade in Toronto and on the New York Exchange. AUG is a symbol for both exchanges. Uh, 78.5 million shares uh, trading over a little bit before we went on the show at $1.56 in U.S. money, giving a market cap around $122 million U.S. dollars. Well, uh, last year was a big year for you guys. And, and you know, But let's be honest, the gold market as a whole and the, the obvious nature of discoveries that you are trying to make, big things that you're looking at, did not quite happen yet. Um, and, and, and yet, you seem to be, to me, to be as ambitious and confident and continue to buy the shares uh, of your stock as much as ever. How do you feel about how last year went? 
Well, it was a, it was a great year for us in, internally and in on a technical basis. Uh, we had a huge undertaking with what we set out to go drill. And, you know, we, we started with a great investment from Goldcorp in January where they bought in at about a $35 million investment, which is a great validation to the big look that we're after, right? And when you look at our portfolio, I sort of talk about it as the big four and uh, projects, meaning Committee Bay, Sombrero, Gibsons McCoy, and Banos del Indio. These are the kind of projects, Jay, where you could find 10 or 20 billion plus ounces of gold in the next few years. And what we've learned up north from last year was it's not going to be easy to go find something that big. And you know, as you eloquently put, most of our stocks have have continually gone up once we start having success and things move forward quite readily. This year, we had um, more discrete discoveries. And, you know, I, I hate to use the word, but I have to here, but there was a lot of technical successes that happened in that program up north. Mm-hmm. And what's good about a technical success is it's not a technical failure. And uh, that means you keep going back and, and we're getting a lot closer. I mean, what I've said to a few people recently is the hole we did hit at this target called IVIC, which just happens to be next to our infrastructure, it's better than the first hole that was drilled at Meliodine, which became 11 million ounces of seven grams. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to tell you how excited and how well our share price could do if we, we got into something that big, but there's a lot of analogous features between the two, and I've talked about it before. Um, the second point I'll make is the second half of last year, as you know, has been very difficult for gold junior gold companies. We had you know, the tech market taken off. The kind of casino gamblers were jumping onto the Bitcoin, the cryptocurrencies, and the gold mm-hmm. market was left in the dust. So it kind of accentuated an oversell in our space. If yeah. you know, investors were to take the time and say, you know, what did you really find? And did you, are you guys getting closer to stuff at Committee Bay? We are 100% getting closer. And then if you look at our Homestake Ridge project, where we drilled a decent hole, again, it's not a barn burner, but it was uh, 32, 30 meters of two grams or so. This, this identified a new ore plunge at the end of the program. And this was our first time on the project. One thing we did make a promise to shareholders on was that we were going to go for new discoveries. You know, there's, there's a good line by, um, by Rick Rule I heard the other day on, uh, on BNN. I believe it goes something along the lines of, I'd rather invest into a company that drills and misses on a major target versus drilling and hitting on a small target. And that's yeah. basically mm-hmm. the theme of our outcome. So, you know, the appeal is certainly there. Um, there's going to be some big additions this year of which projects we get to drill. We'll talk about in Peru and whatnot that are coming online. But uh, ultimately, it's a portfolio of projects, and we're just getting started. And uh, we're in a lot better shape than we were a year ago before Gold Corp invested from a technical perspective and from being able to deliver that first bona fide major discovery. Right. So you have, you know, I think a lot of people probably just aren't really focused on the fact that you have a whole portfolio of of, of uh, outstanding targets. You've also added a lot of good people uh, since uh, the days I first followed you with Caden, a company that you had success with before. But you have, you, you've really only worked on three of seven projects so far. So, I mean, I, I suppose you're going to be, you know, once the once the market heats up for gold, I think it's turning. Michael Oliver assures me of that, and it seems to be the case. You're going to have more people willing to look, at least, uh, and and to look at what you've got going. But you've you've really only done work on three of seven projects, I guess, right? So, you're, and you're going to have some stuff coming out from Peru, which is really exciting to me because last year at this time we'd have to just sit through the winter and wait for you to get for things to warm up at Committee Bay. But 
talk just a little bit about what you've got going in Peru and, and what people might be looking forward to over the next few weeks and months. So it's you hit the nail on the head there. Um, the portfolio is still in the very early stages of being explored by a great technical team. What we started drilling in back in uh, the fall, the end of the, the, the quarter of the fall going into the winter, was this project called Weokoyo. Weokoyo sits very close by to a mine called Pucamarca. It's about a 2 million ounces of oxide. But here's a remarkable fact about that mine that I'm sure not too many people are aware of. Their cash cost of production is about $313 per ounce. Mm, wow. And I'll challenge you to think of all the juniors you follow and bigger companies that you follow majors as well. And where do you find something that profitable? Um, Weokoyo has some past drilling in it. There's oxide gold on the top of a hill, you know, arguably maybe 100 to 200,000 ounces, anywhere from half a gram to a gram. The mine next door is mining that cash cost of 313 per ounce at a half gram average grade. So mm. we're kind of drilling something that's going to have some very, very positive near-term value based on whatever we find there. And uh, we've now drilled three holes. We have two more planned to complete this month. But as we drill, you know, you get a chance to see, you know, the right rocks. Are you, are you in them or not? And, you know, we've seen tons of faulting. We've seen a lot of hydrothermal breccia. These are the rocks that would host that very, very, very profitable uh, type of oxide mineralization that would, would produce at a very, you know, potentially produce at a very low cash cost per ounce. What we don't know about Weokoyo is we don't know how big it could be yet. Um, there's three aspects of it that paint targets, and conservatively we think it could be similar to what's next door at 2 million ounces, but if it's something that mines at a cash cost of three 300-ish per ounce, that's going to be a spectacular, valuable deposit for us. Um, one other thing going on in Peru, Jay, and this is something that I'm starting to lose sleep on, is our Sombrero project is finally starting to come online. It looks like mm. we'll have access to it in February. Sombrero is, is about 200 kilometers west of a series of Peru's largest deposits, Las Bombas, Tintaya, Anticapai, some of these major gold, copper, porphyry, and scarn mm -hmm. targets. Right. And uh, what we've done so far in a two-week season about a year ago in Sombrero, as we were starting to negotiate communities, we got some of the most spectacular gold and copper numbers off the surface, you know, from anywhere from 0.2 up to 7.5 grams gold in several places, uh, up to 16% copper. And then mm. we, you know, were quietly in the background while we were drilling up north. We went and staked a whole bunch more land around Sombrero because we feel it in itself could host a, a major district-style potential. And just a bit of a, a reminder to the listeners that, Las Bombas was bought for $5.8 billion. Altogether, it was $7 billion with infrastructure, about $5.8 billion back in 2014 when we sold Caden. So this, for me, is something that is going to come online uh, in the near term. There'll be a lot of surface work that will lead towards the drill program. There's some major structural components we're already aware of, where the right rocks are beside each other, you know, to be real simple about it, and the mineralization is shedding off these big structures. This project likely comes to a drill-ready state by the end of the summer, but I would say it's it's up there with Committee Bay and, and, and maybe two or three things being found at Committee Bay. That's that's how good Sombrero is for us. So mm. as we go wow. into 2018, the drills are turning, results will start coming out in February. 
one of our major projects, our giants in Peru, comes online in February. And so now we've get to, to work on both ends. And, you know, the other thing, Jay, I'll point out real quick is um, the drilling is going to resume at Committee Bay at the end of March, which is about 10 weeks from today. And this drilling that we're going to do, it's going to go challenge the discovery we made. And it's also going to start increasing the, the resource, which is about 1.3 million ounces of almost eight grams per ton. Um, mm-hmm. This drilling is, is probably going to be one of the most watch drill programs in the entire industry because we're drilling underneath a hole that was better than the first hole at Meliodine. The scope of the target is seven kilometers long. It's huge. Um, It doesn't mean we're going to hit and there's a very good likely chance that there's risk involved and it takes a few more holes, but, you know, to kind of ensure our value for our shareholders and so we don't get punished in the share price, not only will we have Peru coming online, but we're going to be drilling around three bluffs where we're going to start to make that resource bigger by drilling the ore shoots that support it. So mm-hmm. I think the hit rate's going to be dramatically better for us this year. We're going to be a lot more specific up north of where we drill. Um, we're not going to run before we walk, meaning we're going to methodically go through our projects. We're not going to finance for all of the whole year in one shot. And we're going to take our bets in the marketplace and, and we're going to go with a bit of confidence that we're going to get some great numbers out of Peru as we go and, uh, and potentially hit it out of, the, out of the park with Committee Bay. Well, it's, uh, that's what's exciting is you're going to have things to talk about year-round. Can you work year-round on those projects in Peru, or will you focus mostly on North America during our winter and down there that's in our... Good question. Um, usually there's a rainy season that can interfere, yeah. uh, and that would be between uh, February and March. You'd have to take a break, which is healthy to do in any good program so you can process the, the drilling that you did at the end of the, the year previously. Um, one thing that just happened in, in the news in Peru is they've passed some very favorable exploration laws in terms of drill permitting. So now when you permit your first 20 holes, you don't have to give them the collar locations, which is what we had to do last year. You actually um, can drill anywhere you want within the box of the area that you get permitted. This is going to dramatically make Peru much more appealing from exploration. And uh, you know where, where it sits at Weakoyo, under the current permit, we can drill 20 holes, but we had to give the example of where those were. Um, so pretty, well, that, that makes it... That makes it a lot easier then, uh, for sure. Um, l- let me ask you this. Uh, how, are you, how is your treasury now? You're going to be a, a very aggressive drill program. How are you going to finance that? Well, the, the program we're going to do at Committee Bay, it's only $6.5 million at Committee Bay. And so it's not a big program up at Committee Bay. Um, as far as uh, our, our GNA and the stuff we're going to continue doing in Peru, I don't think we're going to need a lot of money in the first half. I, I know we won't need a lot of money in the first half of the year. I think uh, what we plan to do is, as Peru results are coming out in February, we plan to do a, a very aggressive roadshow to kind of go nationwide as well as into Europe this time for the first time. And there's been a lot of interest overseas to hear us and see us. And I think we're going to finance in a very, or I believe we're going to finance in a very anti-dilutive manner. We're not going to take as much money that likely gets offered. And we're going to come back to market a second time based on how the results go, you know, this, this spring going into the, uh, into the summer programs, which would be another round of Committee Bay and getting ready for the Sombrero Drill Program. I don't, I don't see a point of why we would go and drill Committee Bay or raise money for a drill program that's not going to happen for six months yet. I uh-huh. think the market's... I think gold is, you know, the best critics for gold is they're saying gold won't do spectacular until next year. To me, that tells me that the smart money will come into this probably in the middle of this year. And that's where I think, you know, based on some moderate success out of 
Committee Bay, and we're drilling underneath the discovery hole, and the Peru drilling is going really well so far, I think we're going to get a chance to re-rate and possibly competitive with share for, with our prices. But also, we do have the Homestake Ridge project, which is the high-grade project in BC. We're drilling this thing in Peru next to a producing mine, which, you know, a tow milling scenario would be very feasible if we did start to find ounces. There are self-financing opportunities within our portfolio. The next funding we do may be our last funding we do, and it might be fairly moderate, right? All right. Well, that's uh, all I can say is I'm looking at a a chart of your share price, and last July you were selling about twice of where you are right now, in spite of the fact that your fundamentals are getting better. So all I can say is uh, I wished I had spent more money buying shares at these levels than I did at higher levels, but I think it's all going to work out. I think it's all going to work out well. That's why I'm uh, continuing to pound the table for my subscribers. Anything else you'd like to say? We are basically out of time here, Ivan, yeah, but anything else? Yeah, just one last note, and you know, I'll say uh, as this is our third company, Jay, it's not, we're not trying to double or triple the stock on a discovery and, and return that for investors. We're going for the big one. It may take longer. I think that the hard part has happened last year. I think this year could be tremendously more revealing for us, and we could deliver something that would be, you know, meaningful, you know, the the big 10 times your money or possibly more based on our current projects and and where the gold market's headed. But, uh, yeah, we're very bullish going into 2018, and we're looking very forward to how things are going to go. Well, I'm looking forward also to seeing you at the Metals Investor Forum here in a, in a few days, a couple of days from now. So thank you so much uh, for being with us, Ivan, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime in the near future. Thank you very much, Jay. All the best. Appreciate all, it. All, all right. You bet. Uh, folks, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Danielle DiMartino Booth is going to be with us. She should have some very interesting things to say about the economy, about interest rates, and what rising interest rates may mean. Uh, for the economy and for the market, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Danielle DiMartino-Booth. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Bonterra Resources, a Canadian exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator Gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. In 2017, Bonterra raised $40 million and attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kinross, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource model in 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000-plus meters of drilling where the dimensions of the Gladiator Gold Deposit has been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under BONXF. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Danielle DiMartino Booth. And Ms. Booth is the founder of Money Strong, LLC. It's an economic consulting firm, and she began her career in New York with Donaldson, Lovkin, Generet. Uh, and Generette, and also with Credit Suisse, where she worked uh, in fixed income in the public and private equity markets. And after working as a financial columnist, uh, she worked at the Dallas Morning News and then went on to work as an advisor to Richard Fisher at the Federal Reserve Bank in Dallas. Danielle is also the author of Fed Up, which she talked to us about uh, here uh, on this show in the past. That's Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. And how refreshing it is to have an insider talk honestly about an institution she worked for. Wish we had more people like her, which is one of the reasons I'm thrilled to have her on the show again. Thanks for joining me again, Danielle. You know, I'm happy to be here, and um, and I think honesty is one of the most important things. And and I'll 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 just give you a little teaser by saying I'm not as I'm not as negative as I've been in the past on the Fed. Good. Well, I'm. Since I believe it's coming from an honest person, I'm glad to hear that. We hear a lot of happy talk about the Fed, and everything is coming up roses. We've heard that constantly, uh, and somehow it hasn't always worked out or hasn't usually worked out as well as people have said, although depending on who you are, I guess if you're if you're on Wall Street, you're doing quite well, and there's reason to think everything is pretty honky-dory, but if you're in middle America, not so much so, I suppose. Anyway. And that's exactly the case. I, you know, it, it, it's bizarre, but we're... Where are we? A, a decade in, a decade after the worst of the crisis is coming on, and so many Americans, I would venture to say, feel like they've been stuck in a rut for yep. ten years or more. It's a yeah. shame. Has been the case. Um, I know the area that I grew up in, uh, northeastern Ohio, the Rust Belt. Uh, people are hurting pretty bad back there, and some of them are taking to some very serious drugs and all kinds of problems. So it is. Um, you know, economics has its consequences. Monetary dishonesty has its consequences, that's for sure. Well, you know, I, I looked at the uh, at the Fed funds rate. I looked at a chart, and I saw late December is 1.41%. Does that sound about right for Fed funds? Yes, it is in, um, it is in that cute little range that they have. I, how I do wish we could go back to making moves of a half of a percentage point or, and, and, and when, when, when it wasn't something that you needed to get a microscope out to, to decipher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but, but still, that's, that compares to something like eight basis points for a good part of the time for, for a few years or, you know, a quarter of a basis, quarter of a percent or whatever. It was, you know, abysmally low. And so that's quite a rise in interest rates already, though, isn't it? I mean, in, in, in terms from where we were. Um, to what extent? Well, and, and, and you know, actually, um, I, I'm not going to I'm, I'm not going to dwell on the point. Yeah. But I would add that for the people you mentioned on Main Street, mm-hmm. not to yeah. use a cliche, that that differential between basically zero and one and a half, I promise you, it's come out in their variable borrowing costs. It has not been reflected yeah. yet in what savers can make. So there's the other irony is even with rising interest rates, you still stick it to the average working Joe and Jane 
um, in one way, but they don't benefit in the other. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It's it's terrible. To what extent, Danielle? Uh, you know, it's my belief that the Fed has control over the short end of the yield curve, the short-term interest rates, but a lot less on the long rate, on the long end of the yield curve. Do you agree with that? Yes, I, I would. I would agree with that, and we've certainly seen a lot of that um, in the past few weeks. We've seen a much more dramatic move on the short end as the market begins to price in further rate hikes um, by the new incoming team on the Federal Open Market Committee, and the long end is sniffing out kind of the governor on growth that that will create. So the the Fed's not able to to push up long rates the way that it would prefer to be able to do. What do you – so the new Fed – the new Fed chairman coming in, uh, how do you think he will change things? To, to what extent will he change things? What's his philosophy well, and what can we expect from him? You know, and, and this, is, this is where it gets really tricky um, because I don't want to, I, I don't want to make it sound like he's an, he's an, an elitist because I don't mm-hmm. think that he is. But by the same token, there's something to be said for somebody who's, public net worth is the highest of any on the FOMC. And mm. we know because of documentations that have been filed that he's worth, he, he, he and his family are worth upwards of $55 million. Mm-hmm. And Jay, I will tell you, when, when, I, when I wrote about Jay Powell, a quiet leader, this is something that I published shortly after the Senate confirmation hearing, I got a lot of flack. The Wall Street Journal called me up and they said, do, do you stand by this? You're saying it's virtuous that he's wealthy? And I said it's extremely virtuous that, he, that he's wealthy because he's not beholden to anybody and he doesn't need the Fed's pension at all. <laughs> he doesn't need the perks that go along with the position. He's just serving his country the same way he served his country when he worked for a salary of $1 shortly before coming on to the Fed to explain to Congress the perils of letting the U.S. default on its debt. There's something to be said for independence is my point. Oh, absolutely. Um and honesty, as you as you also pointed out, uh, what what is driving interest rates higher now? Do you think it is is a stronger economy? And we've had Alistair McLeod on our show recently of Gold Money, and he's talked about how he believes we're at this point in the credit cycle. You know, when interest rates start to rise, banks have to well, they people have more confidence in the economy. Banks have more confidence, so they're willing to start lending. But also, if they sit around holding treasuries, they lose money by holding treasuries. But what is what is really driving the interest rates? Is it really is it really a strong economy, or is it a combination of the Fed, uh, you know, taking its foot off the accelerator a little bit and and dry, letting liquidity dry up? Or what what is driving rates higher? To what extent is it a market well, I, function as opposed to a to a Fed ex, uh, Fed policy move? So I, I'm not going to be very elegant here, and I apologize in advance. Mother Nature is driving the economy right now. Mother Nature's at the wheel. Good. Um, if you look back to other prior years, you know, Hurricane Katrina was pretty much the, the, the biggest disruption and caused the greatest amount of damage to the economy that then, had to be, that then had to be replaced. Now, last week there was a report out that said that insurers nationwide in 2017 suffered a $306 billion hickey. That's losses. But mm-hmm. look at losses in the mirror and tell me that that's not money that's going to be poured back into the economy just to repair and rebuild what Hurricane Harvey, Irma, Maria, two massive wildfires, the, the largest in, in California history. 
money that is destroyed, wealth that is destroyed, assets that are destroyed, that can be replaced with insurance proceeds, that is money that pours into an economy that was slowing prior to Hurricane mm-hmm. Harvey making that first landfall. Mm-hmm. It's his math. Well, it, it almost... Yeah, it almost sounds uh, that you're making virtue of, of Keynesian economics, in a sense. Well, Keynesian, I mean, I, I, I don't think Mother Nature is Keynesian. Um, no. And, and, no, but and, I mean the not, idea, it, it, yeah. But, but, it, but it is a sugar high. I want to emphasize uh, yeah. that. Yeah, okay, the, sure. Uh, the, automobile, the automobile industry was in a flat-out, year-over-year recession. Automobiles were contracting as a sector yeah. before mm-hmm. Harvey hit. And then there were all of a sudden overnight a million cars that needed to be replaced, and lo and behold, woohoo! Look at the look at car sales. Look at how robust they are. I mean, you know, I look at the word robust and I have to put it in quotes. I'm like, you destroy a million, you replace a million, fine, and then you move on. What next with subprime automobile delinquencies going through the roof, with VHA mortgage uh, delinquencies pushing 10% as of the third quarter, with credit card loss provisions rising, with signs that households are under stress. That's what's underneath. But right now, what we're seeing is this sugar high as money pours into the economy. It's just like mm-hmm. cash for clunkers. It was, it was, yeah. it was very, very uh, temporary, and it didn't have any permanent effects on the economy. Right. Well, we need some permanent positive effects, and I guess to get back to the basic, uh, the, the basics of economics, supply and demand, and, and forget all this uh, the sugar highs, ultimately. Well, I w- would like to refer to an article you wrote January 10th titled, The Great Recovery, Unambiguous Clarity Over the Horizon. Um, you talked about a failed inflation gauge. How is our inflation gauge, how is it constructed and how has it failed? Well, right now, what policymakers prefer to use is called the core PCE. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me, poor uh, personal conspen- uh, consumption expenditures. If you look at that number, it underweights housing to such a degree as to be insulting to the average household. Insulting. Mm-hmm. I don't use that word lightly. I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, Harvard Un- University and um, its real estate center. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm getting over a cold. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but, um, but, but Harvard has, uh, has identified some 40% of Americans now who spend an extraordinary, they're extremely distressed in terms of the amount of, of their budget that they have to allocate to housing. And yet, mm-hmm. the Fed's favorite inflation metric understates housing to a great degree. And then it overstates medical care to a great degree because of Medicaid and Medicare reimbursements. But that doesn't mm-hmm. take away from what the average household has to spend on health care. Mm-hmm. <coughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, I can empathize with you. I've been through it uh, hosting a show at times when you have to battle a cold, and uh, it's, it's not a lot of fun. I'm, I'm sorry you're, you're having to deal with that. But I did you have... meet Ron Paul over the weekend, so life is good. Oh, you, you did what? I did get you to met... meet Ron Paul over the weekend, so it's not all bad. Oh, Wonderful. Well, I'm I'm sure he would he would be delighted to to uh, and probably reads your stuff. He's he certainly uh, you know knew the Fed Chairman uh, Greenspan very well in his days and uh, in the House. So, uh, and I know he's very you know as an Austrian economist, uh, very very concerned about monetary policy. And I'm sure he must find your views quite refreshing at times. Anyway, well, look if, if you want to go back to the inflation metric and um, some some dinner time conversation. Um, that Dr. Paul and I had, it had to do with 
the Fed following this wrong inflation metric and how mm-hmm. very destructive that can be because if you're saying, I won't make a move until it hits 10%, but yeah. by its very design, it's never going to hit, excuse me, 2%, but by its yeah. very design, it's never going to hit 2%, that, 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 that sows the seeds of malinvestment and, and the economic destruction that follows in its path. Well, we've certainly seen that, and we've had uh, economist John Williams on this show in the past, too, and he's talked about, uh, you know, his measures of inflation, talked about hedonic pricing that's, came al- that's come along, uh, I think, during maybe the Bush, Bush 1, and also uh, some things that took place during the Reagan administration, too. Substitution, if, if, uh, if steak gets too expensive, you just simply substitute it with hamburger or something like that. Those, those kind of gimmicks that he, and he's gone back and looked at inflation, if we use the same sort of measurement, the same sort of um, uh, items in the, uh, in the index as we used going back in Reagan, that we are, that the real inflation rate, the real cost of living, and I used to hear people talk about the cost of feeding a family of four or something like that, the cost of taking care of a family. We don't hear that kind of talk anymore. But what does it really cost for the basic household? And what you're saying is the the housing cost is really under underscored. I mean, is not uh, is underrated to a great extent. Uh, so anyway, the the point is and that, that, that if is we have a third of a household budget, a third of a household budget is typically housing, if not more. Yeah, and if you live in San Francisco or New York, as I do, it's probably more than that for a lot of people. Well, so if you have the wrong index and you're suggesting that inflation is a lot lower than it is, then you can just keep pumping the money, and that's what they've been doing, pumping the system full of full of uh, narcotics, I guess, and getting and getting everybody, or the sugar, as you say, sugar high. Um, what? So there's still, though, people in the Fed, I think your article was pointing out, that, that are concerned about not enough inflation, right? So we need to keep goosing it oh, more. If you listen to, if you listen to, I was referring to some comments that were that were made by Charlie Evans um, mm-hmm. last week, and in fact, he's going to be on the wires again this week. But he he remains concerned that inflation is too low. You know, I yeah. like to joke that I can't say those words in front of my retired mother. Yes, lives on a very modest pension. Uh-huh. Because if you say inflation's too low, she'll whip out her latest receipt from the pharmacy or from going to the doctor mm-hmm. or from filling up her gas tank. Mm-hmm. Danielle, go, go ahead. No, no, I'm just, I'm just saying it's ridiculous. So, but I would like you to, to refer, if you wouldn't mind, to the image that I depicted last week for the Great Recovery, because the Great Recovery is something that I really wanted to say tongue-in-cheek. You know, if you look at, at, at 2014, it was kind of the year that was – if you look at 2015, we looked at it ex-energy. If you yeah. looked at 2016, we looked at it as X retail. I, you know, yeah. I, I propose that economists will look at 2018 as being X autos and 2019 yeah. as being X restaurants. As long as you carve out the part of the economy that is sickly, then everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the propaganda, I guess, to keep, to keep Wall Street happy or what, what's driving it? Because it's not keeping middle America happy, that's for sure. And, and the common folks like your mother and, you know, people that... Um, that have to live on on average incomes. I'm sure um, you know some of the people at the Fed don't have to worry too much about that. Well, of course not. Again, if you have pension for life, you're you're not going to be concerned, but you are going to want to stay at the Fed, and you are going to be concerned with your legacy. Um, mm-hmm. And again, these are things that I don't I don't think that Jay Powell is going to be susceptible to that. Yeah. Now Good that point. might mean that, that he gets that might that might mean that he does not agree with the White House almost immediately. We will have to see when he's first tested. Mm-hmm. 
Um, one thing, I'm, I'm Michael Oliver, who we have on our show, um, because he's just so darn good in terms of his his, uh, his technical analysis. He worked with uh, E.F. Hutton, the International Commodity Division, a long time ago. Uh, he's a veteran technical analyst, but he's a momentum and structural guy. He's just absolutely spot on, more than any other technical person I've ever used. So he's on our show almost constantly, uh, almost every week. But he talked, he's really very, I don't know that I'd say he's concerned. He sees a substantial amount of inflation in the commodity sector uh, rising up, which which I gather will will probably, uh, you know, eventually, unless the Fed can X out everything they don't want to have in there that makes it makes inflation look higher than it really is he's concerned that people are going to start paying a lot more for their food especially agricultural commodities he thinks are in a real the start of a real bull market commodities in general he's very bullish on i sort of gathered from reading one of your remarks that you may share that sentiment look the producer price index recently hit a six-year high Mm -hmm. and this goes back to the mother nature thing when you have all these homes burned down or flood, imagine what that's going to do to commodities prices. Sure. That's exactly what we've seen in spades. And the fact that, that so many policymakers dismiss input prices, I, I mean, at their peril. And, mm-hmm. and as you say, what we've seen happen in the agricultural complex is enormous. And this will feed into what people have to spend to put food on the table. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, if, if there's one thing that I consider to be particularly encouraging about Jay Powell, and we can mm-hmm. talk about him because everybody's going to be talking about him for the next few months until he presides over his first meeting in late March. Mm-hmm. But before he left the private sector, his sole focus was on the industrial sector. Mm. This is not someone who's going to ignore producer prices. He worked with the manufacturing sector. He worked closely with the automobile industry. That was what he did in the private sector. So he mm-hmm. understands things like margin squeeze, and he sure as heck understands asset prices gone wild. He was the one who, in October 2012, one of his first meetings, he was a rookie, and he still managed to say before QE3 was, was rolled out, what if this becomes habit-forming? Well, I mean, <laughs> like, that's a strong word for me, habit-forming. This is somebody who sees right through the fact yep. that so much of what the Fed has done has benefited Wall Street and hurt Main Street. And so it has become habit-forming, and to break it like any serious addiction, it, it's going to be very, very painful to, if and when it's addicted and I, is stopped, I mean, is broken. When, um, how do you think, to what extent do you think the Fed is really scared to death of, the, of a stock market crash and they might have to keep you know, concocting false inflation numbers so they can keep justifying pumping more money in. Do you think that's, is it, you think that's something that Powell may object to? Well, given what his opinions have been in the past on quantitative easing, and we only mm-hmm. have really five meetings to go off of because transcripts yeah. are released with a five-year delay, which is yeah. ridiculous, and they're redacted on top of that, which nobody wants to talk about that, that boogeyman at all, but they are mm-hmm. redacted. Uh, mm-hmm. But given his prior opinions on QE, his true test, as you rightly state, is going to be when the stock market corrects. Yeah. And uh, bear in mind, he, th- he was part of the FOMC under Janet Yellen that voted to say that the, the shrinkage of the Fed's balance sheet 
was not going to be data dependent, that it was going to occur in the background as if you were watching paint dry. Well, guess what? Even if the Fed stops hiking interest rates, say after March or June, and just manages to hike rates twice more this year, getting it Mm -hmm. up to maybe 2%, they're committed to continue on a tightening path by reducing the amount of liquidity that they pump up into the system by allowing that balance sheet, that $4 trillion war chest they've built up to run off. So Jay Powell's got not one, but two big tests coming up when these markets begin to correct. With just a, a couple of minutes, uh, three or four minutes left here, I want to ask you about the dollar. The dollar has been a lot weaker uh, recently. Of course, it you know you can go back over a number of years, and it's it's certainly not at its low point yet. But to what extent? And the Fed never seems to want to talk about the dollar. It always you know remember Greenspan never wanted to talk about the dollar. Uh, but to what extent? I mean, that has to weigh on the Fed's mind. You would think. A dollar that is that is going down substantially. It is the world's reserve currency. China, Russia, a lot of countries now are starting to say we're getting kind of tired of the dollar. You guys created out of nothing. You uh, you know you you have a petrodollar, but now Saudi Arabia sells most. I think China is its largest customer, and China is saying we don't want dollars anymore. We want yuan. If you don't like yuan, you can take yuan and go over and buy gold with it. Um, to what extent do you think geopolitics and the potential for a dollar decline plays into the Fed's thinking and might actually, as it did back in the late 70s in 1980, sort of play into um, the Fed's decision to hike rates aggressively. I mean, I can't imagine they could even come close to doing anything like they did, like Volcker did in 1980. But to what extent might the dollar actually play into the Fed's policymaking, even though they never talk about the dollar? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, the Fed... Uh, China played a game of chicken with the Fed in December 2015, in September 2015, excuse me. Um, mm-hmm. And Janet Yellen's, the, the, the FOMC statement that eventually followed in December 2015 and the minutes that followed had the dollar sprinkled everywhere. Now, from a, as a former Fed insider, this was the biggest no-no I had ever seen in black and white. Hmm. Because it's, it's not the Fed's purview to talk about the dollar. That is strictly, theoretically, treasury. the purview of the Treasury. But to answer right. your question, of course it disturbs them. The Bank of Japan is, is, is unwittingly and unwillingly, because of how they have constructed their quantitative easing, they're tapering. The European mm-hmm. Central Bank has started to taper its purchases. Right. So this is when you start to get into a currency war if everybody starts to tighten at the same time and all of a sudden the dollar is not the go-to currency and you tack on geopolitics and right. Xi Jinping and his, his ambitions for the yuan and the fact that, yes, China is now the largest import, importer of oil, so why bother with the petrodollar? Right, right. It, it, this is, I mean, these are, I believe that the uh, Shanghai uh, oil exchange, the uh, futures exchange is supposed to open for business in a couple of days uh, from now. So that should be really interesting. I know the mainstream doesn't talk about it at all. The Fed never talks about it. The, the, the Treasury never talks about it. But uh, really some interesting times. Danielle, I, I really, I'm really thankful that you could come on and talk to us a little bit. Your insights are so welcome. And uh, refreshingly honest, uh, thank you so much for being with us. I hope we can do it again sometime in the not-too-distant future, but we are out of time now. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Okay. 
All right. Thank you, Danielle. Well, folks, next week, uh, Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity will be with us. Michael Oliver as well. And uh, Nav Dalawal from uh, Bonterra Resources, a company that I'm following very closely. It should be an interesting time. So until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. 